Roll Tide, everybody, and welcome to Bama Talk. I'm Steve Sample, along with podcast partner and producer Mark Phillips, coming to you from Airwave Recording Studio in Birmingham, Alabama. We are excited about the season being in full swing. The tide's the talk of the town, Tuscaloosa's in max tailgate mode with the smell of burgers and barbecue and steaks on the grill. Tons of tide people hanging out on the quad, all the things that make fall so fine. Friends, family, food, and football. Can I get a witness? You know, what's amazing about game days now at Bama is that it's grown so much over the last few years that every home game's bigger than even homecoming used to be. And it's not just the game, it's an event. It's sort of the Northern Hemisphere's version of Carnival. 101,000 plus fans in the stands and there's still a waiting list for season tickets. Thousands of people that don't even go to the game come just to tailgate and soak up the sights and the sounds. Since we started playing all our home games in Tuscaloosa in 1998, with a 38-31 win over BYU, by the way, the huge increase in revenue that seven or eight home games every season has created has had a tremendous effect on the local economy, and the campus looks amazing. You can see it everywhere you look. And the record-setting crowds for the spring game on A-Day has been a national story. The buzz bleeds over into Sundays, too. Bama has 39 former players in the NFL right now on 21 teams, and we can thank Coach Saban for producing 32 of them in just the past five years. And let's not forget we've got three other head coaches on campus walking around with 2012 National Championship rings. Sarah Patterson, Mick Potter, and Patrick Murphy. Selling Natty Champ t-shirts is a growth industry around here these days. Next time you cruise through campus headed toward town, be sure and take Bryant Boulevard, and you'll notice that they've named the next four avenues west of the stadium after coaching greats Wallace Wade, Frank Thomas, Red Drew, and Gene Stallings. Now, if you're one of the few that have never visited the Bryant Museum, be sure and go by. You'll love it. And if you've seen it before, but it's been a while, they're always adding new displays and exhibits. You might even run into a member of the team that just graduated with a 48-6 and record on the field and two national championships. All this is to say that the capstone's got a vibe and a feel all its own. It's an atmosphere that's been created by the extraordinary efforts and accomplishments of a lot of special people in a very special place for a long, long time. One of those special people has been generous enough to take time out of her very busy schedule to drive over and be with us today. She's retired from the university after 27 years of service, having been a member of the Million Dollar Band for five years from 1970 to 1975, served as assistant band director from 1976 until 1983, and then became the first female band director at the university and in the SEC in 1984. After leading the band for 18 years, she passed the baton in 2002 and has since been honored by being named one of the top 31 female University of Alabama graduates of the 20th century. Catherine Scott, Thanks for coming by to spend some time with us. Well, Steve, it's great to see you. I'm so glad you could could come. You know what I've often wondered about over the years, because we've known each other since right after the dawn of time, you're from Alex City. You played bassoon in the Benjamin Russell High School Band. Mm -hmm. How did you wind up at the university, and at what point did it first occur to you that somehow you might just wind up being the band director? There was never any doubt that I was going to be in the Million Dollar Band if they would have me. Colonel Butler was a legend, as you and I both know. Oh, yeah. 
travel around the state with his with the Million Dollar Band uh, and have concerts at the high schools. And he put on fabulous concerts that were just terrific for me. And uh, I'd run into him in Ellick City, actually, because he would go down to Dadeville at Lake Martin, and uh, I'd run into him there, too. But he always remembered me. I went to music camp in the summer times, and I believe you were there as well. I think uh, that's actually where we first met about yeah. years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, he was wonderful. I went uh, two years under him, and then a third year, that's when he retired, and... Um, I was under the next director for one year, Earl Dunn. Colonel Butler is one of my favorite people uh, in my whole life. Uh, It's my brother's godfather. Uh, Dad was very close to him. Uh, I idolized him. I still miss him to this day. His last football season was 1968. He was actually the band director of the Million Dollar Band for 34 years and was made an honorary colonel of the ROTC early on in his tenure. Right. Uh, Right. And the the Million Dollar Band actually started 100 years ago. They're celebrating their anniversary, and it was a military band. Mm -hmm. And it was only uh, later on that they actually started performing at uh, football games. Uh, And like I say, they'll be celebrating their 100-year anniversary at one of the games in September this year, uh, either that third or second or third September twenty second. There you go. It's, it's that weekend. It, there'll be a Friday night concert in Moody, and then the usual uh, reunion band. It's not on homecoming. It's uh, going to be a special event. They've been working on it hard. I'm I'm not a part. I mean, I'll be a part of it, but I'm not really doing any of the planning. You know, I, be- a lot of people probably don't know that. In the 100-year history of the Million Dollar Band, there have only ever been seven total directors. What was it like to be one of that, those select few people? And beyond that, the only female. Well, my first year, there's no doubt that uh, I was sick to my stomach every day that I went to work. I was just said, oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to have to play in front of all these people. And... Um, I was waking up at 3 in the morning, and I was at the Old Union. That's where we had our rehearsals. Um, Fourth floor. That was the band, uh-huh, the band hall. Now it's a Pfeiffer Hall. But anyway, I was at work by 4.30 to 5 for that first, I guess, five months till I finally chilled out a little bit and began to get the hang of things uh but it was it had its pressure there was a lot of anxiety oh i can well imagine i I remember of course my dad was uh on the band staff for quite a few years and i remember a lot of conversations about those kind of things and uh your years there coincided with several coaches starting with coach brian all the way up through franchoni uh, what kind of interaction did you have with the football coaches over the, the over the years? I know it wasn't probably a whole lot, but I know they do uh, get in contact with the band director. What kind of interaction did you have with them, and what kind of st- might stand out about those interactions with those guys to you? Coach Bryant, uh, I really didn't have that much interaction. Um, Sam Bailey, Coach Sam Bailey, was really ran the athletic department. But as coaches moved on and, and um, Co- Coach Bryant passed away, when when Stallings came in, that that really did it for me. He's just a super super man, and anyone that's ever met him knows that. He's just a gentleman. He's he's thoughtful. 
he thinks about the how hard the students work and I finally got him to uh, come over and um, I asked would he address the band during band camp that's the time we're rehearsing for our first show oh, yeah he was said I'll be delighted to do that and um, never has a coach come before that and so that was a thrill to the students and it really pumped them up and it made me feel good that he wanted to do that for us and then that became a tradition. He always would come uh, every year that he was there and just say the, you know, the most uplifting things for the students. And, it, it you know, it pumped them up, pumped me up. And he, then, they, then he began to bring some players. So he was a great one. I mean, he's, he's just tops on my list. There's no doubt. Isn't it amazing that between these these great eras, uh, Coach Bryant's 25 years, co- the job Coach Saban's doing now is phenomenal. I, I uh, really wish I could have been under him. I, I, yeah, uh, I've heard that Coach Saban's gone by and addressed the band, too. And isn't it amazing that a coach as great as Stallings was on the field? Mm-hmm. I mean, he did win a national championship, averaged 10, 10 wins a year for seven years, uh, that almost gets forgotten in between all the accomplishments that Coach Saban and Coach Bryant uh, have had. It's just an amazing era we're going through now, and it's just so so exciting to be able to sit back and, and, and watch it. You know, something I've always wondered about was uh, when you go on road games with the band. Uh-huh. And first of all, of course, it's like moving a small part of the Army because you've got several <laughs> buses and all that equipment and all those kids and trying to keep them sober uh, and out of jail. But what were some of the tougher road games, you know, the venues, stadiums, what were some of the tougher places you played at, and what were some of the uh, places you enjoyed visiting the most? Uh, Tennessee was always just a perfect place, huge stadium. It had its such strong traditions, and uh, and it was a beautiful time of year, and so we would take the students up to Gatlinburg and uh, let them have a Friday night yeah. Fun. But then it was all work the next day. And my former classmate was the assistant at uh, Tennessee for, for uh, several years. And then he became the director. So there was a little bit of rivalry. And he he graduated from the University of Alabama. Uh, speaking of Gatlinburg, one of the great stories um, some of the guys that were in the band back then told me about was, uh, and yes, they've been. That tradition goes way back. Colonel Butler used to take the band up on Fridays mm-hmm. to Gatlinburg. Of course, back then I think they went in three, maybe four buses. Whereas uh, we went in nine. Oh, uh-huh. oh yeah, and, yeah. You know, look like Ringling truck. Group. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, they got up to Gatlinburg one year, and this was in the early mid '60s. Uh, they got there, got checked into the hotel. Everybody goes out to eat, uh, walking around, kind of taking in the sights and the atmosphere up there. And they walk back to the hotel and notice the buses are all gone. Well, the drivers had gone out somewhere and gotten drunk and gotten in the buses and decided they wanted to drive around up in the mountains and go sightseeing in the middle of the night. So that was kind of an exciting uh, episode in the chronicles of going to Tennessee. Uh, you know, it's a... I, but that didn't happen under me. No, no, no I, I, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I've I always loved Catherine watching you kick off those red pumps so you could climb up on that ladder at halftime. I actually saw a picture on Facebook the other day of those high hills laying on the ground there next to the bottom of the ladder on the sideline. It had to have been a thrill to climb up there and lead that band in front of those huge crowds in so many exciting settings. 
Well, that is something I truly miss. Uh, just no one can describe how it feels until you're there. And my goal, really, uh, my objective as director was to keep those fans in the stadium during halftime. Um, so many of them would get up and leave during my years in the band, and uh, I just didn't want that. And each year, it, my, I, I guess my shows, I tried to make them more entertaining as, as much as I could. And uh, I remember the last couple of years, I, I would look over at the drum major and say, look at the audience. I wanted him to have that feeling, too, that the, we want them to be, want to be in the stands. It's a, and it's a family us. thing. It's a family thing, and the, the, the tradition and the connectedness of the, the band, the team, the fans, the administration, the, everybody that's associated with it is part of it, and that's what makes it such an amazing thing that in such a small, basically rural area when it began 120 years ago, <laughs> has accomplished so much. It's just amazing. You know, I know you got to know a lot of those kids, like you were just mentioning over the years. Gosh, there were, what, 350 a year or so in the band, give or take a few. There were, and and they're, they're the ones that I, quote, hang out with um, now. Uh, and, you know, they're in their 40s. Fewer in their 50s that I taught. So um, they're not all in their 20s, for sure. They they make the job. So you stay in touch with some oh, of them? Oh, absolutely. Well, I know uh, every time I run into some of them, they, they, they love you and miss you. Uh, I think your last halftime show, I know that was the uh, the last home game of the 2002 season. It's hard to believe right. it's been 10 years ago. Goodness gracious. The last halftime show you did, if I'm not mistaken, was called The Halftime of a Lifetime. Right. Uh, and by the way, it was a great show. What kind of emotions were you dealing with that day? You know, I've been asked that a lot. And just pr like a coach, I, I'm i more concerned about, are they going to get this right? Are they going to uh, remember this? Execution. Uh, we had, yeah. We, and we had, of course, all kinds of special effects of fireworks and the um, uh, U.S. Army Herald, the trumpets from Washington. And uh, then we had our Atlanta pipe band, which are the bagpipes. They're known to be world famous. And they came down. So, you know, all that's going through my head. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I'm not really thinking about... I wanted to, but I couldn't think about this is my last halftime. It was more like get the show right, <laughs> then there, we can celebrate. Was there ever a show that just went in the ditch, just, that just, just chat me wrong, went to heck in a handbasket? <laughs> Absolutely. I'll never forget it. Of all the places it had to be, it was at Tennessee, as I just mentioned earlier. My, Speaking of going to heck. Yeah. We, uh, uh, you know, I always want to do a, a good show for them, a better show than they put on. It's just a, a friendly competitiveness. Sure. But anyway, we were doing our Phantom show. and um, Phantom of the Opera. Right. We had a big tarp that was professionally painted, the mask, the rose. It was 20 yards by 40 yards. We were to roll it out real fast yep. and uh, at the, from the 50 out. And then the students were to march in playing those eerie last chords of Phantom of the Opera. And, of course, 
the first time ever and only time the tarp got twisted right in the middle. Now, we're on the 50-yard line in Nayland Stadium. Their directors are standing right next to my ladder, and I'm thinking, oh, this couldn't happen at a worse place. Then I could hear kind of this whole, oh, expletive deleted, you know, uh, from the students because the, all they could see was, hey, we're going into what? They're not going to be covered up, you know. And I said, get it off, get it off, you know, from my, st- my ladder because they were just kind of looking up at me, uh, the people that were managing the tarp. So anyway, they came down the 50 and just got it off. So the students are just coming towards the 50 with no cover, uh, tarp. So it looked like just a blob of people uh, instead of being covered and uh, having those eerie sounds creep out from the sides of it. You know, it was over next to the fence by that time, and I was furious. But they recovered well, I'll have to say that. They had a great show up to that point and after that. But um, that was the uh, game where Philip Doyle in the last seconds kicked. Uh, 1990. Okay. I knew you'd know the date. 96. And I, <clears throat> and, I mean, I couldn't enjoy anything at that point. I couldn't enjoy the game. You know, it's so exciting for everybody else. And I was sitting there sulking because I just couldn't get over the halftime foul up. But anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that. And that just we got to be prepared. You well, I'll tell you about my million-dollar band halftime show disaster. What? <laughs> it was the Iron Bowl in 1996 at Legion Field, which we won, by the way, 24 to 23 on a last-second pass from Freddie Kitchens to Dennis Riddle. <laughs> I don't normally take dates to Bama games, but I had a hot date that night. Well, at the end of the show, we're sitting on the west side of Legion Field. You had all these fireworks and cannons, and I really wasn't aware that was going to happen. And I'm kind of half paying attention for just a second, and all of a sudden that stuff goes off. Bout scared me half to death. <laughs> well, they wound up triggering a migraine headache for my date. So the fireworks at the game were great that night, but they darn sure were the only ones that night. So we got over it eventually, but uh, that was uh, that was something I won't forget. <laughs> I, I, I remember that, and uh, that was the Lay Miz show, and I'm— um, I'm sure you've got to be referring. We did have fireworks, but we had cannons, and they were loud. And I tried to notify most everybody that that was going to happen during halftime. But um, oh, you'd anyway. have to you'd have to alert Homeland Security now if you were going to do that. <laughs> oh yeah, that's oh, yeah. true. <laughs> oh, well, you know something I was just thinking about too. People sometimes want to know. I, I know you get this question, and I have too, since uh-huh. I kind of grew up around the band how the band got its name, and I thought this would be a good day to kind of share it with people that may not know the story, but we were playing Georgia Tech in Atlanta Mm -hmm. in 1922 and getting beat pretty bad. Uh, An Alabama alum named Champ Pickens was talking to some Atlanta-based sports writer at halftime, and the writer said, well, your team's not doing too good. What do you guys have? And Pickens, who (laughs) who may have been a sports reporter himself, I'm not not sure, replied, well, we've got a million-dollar band. And the rest is history. It stuck. But what most people don't know also happened in the 1922 season was that Alabama, who was, and we weren't having a great year in football that year, one of the rare ones, <laughs> went up to Philadelphia and upset the University of Pennsylvania 9-7. to Penn, at that time, was a national power, and nobody thought any team from the South 
would stand a chance. So that win was huge not only for Alabama, but for the football all over the South. And it actually preceded the first big Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl win that occurred three years later that most people do know about. So uh, another thing I was thinking of is that, you know, Alabama um, holds the national record for appearances in bowl games and also wins. Uh, we want to make sure you're aware of that. <laughs> but that also means that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm figuring or assuming that the Men Dollar Bands probably had more bowl appearances than just about any other band in existence. What, what were your bowl is, trips like? Uh, well, I, I, before you get there, let me mention this. Uh, what were you doing the night that we beat Southern Cal out? Um, now, we... That was in when September the, of 1971. I was in the Tuscaloosa uh-huh. High School band, and we played our home games in Denny Stadium because it had not been renamed Bryant-Denny yet. We had a home game that night, and I was sitting in the stands with a transistor radio because that game was played on Friday night. Uh, we wore all white that night, mm-hmm. white helmets, white jerseys, white pants. Uh, Southern Cal had come to Birmingham the year before and beat us like a rented mule. Right. Sam Cunningham <laughs> ran all over us. Well, anyway, that was the night that we unveiled the wishbone. So we go out there, and we're listening on the radio. And, of course, John Forney and uh, I believe Doug Layton were doing just a beautiful job of calling the game. Uh, so as we're, we're leaving our game, it's coming on because they were two hours behind us. The game didn't actually start until about 9 or 9.30 our time. Right. So I get home. My sister calls, says, everybody's in the fountain over in front of Rose Administration. Come on over. <laughs> so I jump in the car and drive over there. And sure enough, uh, this is probably 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning. There's four, five, or 6,000 students and townspeople uh, and passersby in the fountain in front of Rose Administration, out in the street on University Boulevard. It was like what you think New Year's Eve is going to be like. And it was one heck of a great spontaneous celebration. They were spilling out into the street. People were you know, jumping on cars and hooting and hollering. And it was it was just a real treat. And, and I, I believe we all went out and met the team at the airport when they came back, too. So that was, that was fabulous. I was one of those people who was at the fountain as well. You know, a lot of students now don't realize that there was a fountain because uh, it's just flowers and uh, in front of rows now. But uh, that was that was a great night. Uh, I've never seen an, such an outpouring of excited students in my time. And I was a student at that at that point, a sophomore, but yeah. Well, and we. Uh... We went through that season and did pretty well. We got the bowl game, but we went 11-0 and 0 going right. in, into the Orange Bowl. Uh, oh, Catherine, I, I have to add this, too. I feel like it's my responsibility <laughs> to share this with you and our listeners because it's the kind of thing you want to make sure that gets passed down through the ages, that I'm probably one of the very few people that knows that there are actually three official Alabama fight songs. That's right, y'all. There's three. And I know the lyrics to all three. Now, no, I'm not going to sing them on the air, but if anybody wants to talk about them and get some help with that, I'm easy to find. And by the way, the words to the first line of Yeah, Alabama are Yeah, Alabama, drown them tide, not crimson tide. Okay, now I feel better. Oh, one other thing. <laughs> yeah, Alabama was originally written by a student named Ethelred Lundy Sykes many, Correct. many years ago. And it was actually written as a Dixieland tune. So it has evolved over the years, but the uh, New Orleans-like origins of it, I think, are interesting. I actually heard a a small jazz group play a version of it that sounded 
probably a lot like what the original was meant to be uh, actually about a month ago in downtown Birmingham, and it was pretty interesting. But in any way, but in any event, yeah, there are actually three official fight songs for the University of Alabama. One of them is called Song of the Crimson Tide, and one of them is called The March of Triumph. And I think Colonel Butler had a lot to do with, with both of those. Um, Catherine, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time to, to drive up here uh, with, in the threat of bad weather. Uh, take time out of what I know is a busy schedule. I know you got a lot going on these days. I also know there are probably a lot of folks that would love to be able to get in touch with you that may not know how. What's the best way to reach you? Well, Steve, I'm in real estate now, and I work with realty executives, and it is located on, uh, as you and I used to remember it, River Road, but it is now Jack Warner Parkway. People can call me there. They can always connect me, uh, connect them to my cell phone. So be sure, please, if you're coming from out of town, come and see me. I'd appreciate it. Well, Catherine, thank you again so much for coming up. It's just been a real treat, and I, I appreciate uh, hearing some of your experiences and the background and uh, all the things you got to, uh, to go through as the band director of the University of Alabama Million Dollar Band. I want to give everybody out there, if you don't mind, a big roll tide. There you go. There you go. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that may not have already done so to please subscribe to Bama Talk right here on iTunes. You can download the shows to your mobile device too. And there's a free podcast app available that makes storing and accessing these puppies nice and easy. We're really enjoying getting a lot of feedback from all over, and we'd like to hear from you too. So visit our Bama Talk Facebook page and let us know where you're listening from. Well, it's about time to head to the locker room again, but before we go, we want to say how much we appreciate you listening and that we hope you'll tune in again. Till next time, tell your friends about us, take care, have a blessed day, and roll tide.